Chris, we're in 2003, 20 years ago, which was the time that I was in freshman and sophomore year of college in Boston, Massachusetts, enjoying the beautiful spring weather, enjoying the beautiful early fall weather. I found out pretty quickly that I would rather be closer to the city than closer to where everybody else was living in the university. So I got into the dorm that was closest as possible to the city without leaving campus. So that allowed me every opportunity to walk around Mass Avenue and Newberry Street and into uh, the rest of Boston, going closer and closer to places like the Boston Common, the Public Garden. Beautiful. I had the time of my life just going through the city. And this was an era in which, just to put it in the context, we were illegally downloading or maybe not illegally downloading songs from Napster and Kazaa and other places. And what that allowed me to do was understand artists better to where I would then want to go buy their CDs. And so there were two places that I would go to to buy CDs, Chris. One was Newberry Comics on Newberry Street in Boston, very famous, more indie record store. And the other one, the Virgin Mega Store on Mass Ave and Newberry Street, which, by the way, it's not Sam Goody we're talking here. This was a multi-level extravaganza of a record store, CD store, entertainment store, whatever you call it. But it allowed me the chance to buy these CDs from artists I didn't know existed. Like I got in a Todd Rundgren when I was in college and I didn't know that Todd Rundgren was a thing. And so I heard him one night on late night Boston radio and I was like, what is that? That sounds amazing. And that allowed me to dig into his CD collection. I mean, I downloaded some songs and then I went to the record store and bought two or three of his CDs the first time, you know, that I was going to buy anything of his. And that started me on the road to becoming a big Todd Rundgren fan. The point is, this is a big moment in my life where I'm getting to really understand what it's like to buy physical copies of music with your own money and to cherish it and to discover new things all the time. And I think this is around the time, around the time, 2003, when we start to finally see actual vinyl records back in stores again and people start collecting them again. I'm sure you already had a pretty good collection by this time. I had zero by 2009. Oh, come on. I had to restart. No, I was gone. I Like I was a pure CD guy at this time. Okay. Well, this was around the time that my dad gave me a lot of his records. So I think that kind of started it for a lot of people my age, especially millennials. We were the ones who started the whole, you know, recollecting record thing. So welcome to that age. I don't know. That means nothing as far as the rest of this podcast <laughs> is concerned. But welcome to 2003. This is Hall of Songs. Welcome, music lovers and loyal listeners, to Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I'm Tim Malcolm. I am Chris Jones. How's it going, my friend? How are we doing? It's good. It's good. Uh, I'll tell my my favorite record store story. In Ann Arbor, there were a bunch, including a uh, a Tower Records. But in my hometown of Morgantown, West Virginia, there was a little place called Backstreet Records that 
had a guy who ran the place and I don't remember his name. It was one of the coolest guys. I would go in in like high school and he would just chat, uh, chat us up and give us recommendations. And then when I was my, when my grateful dead fandom was uh, just sort of coming into existence, we gave my buddy, Jason, and I each gave him 10 tapes and came back like a couple weeks later and he had recorded 20 tapes for us. So we instantly went from like having zero shows to, I don't know if we had a f- 10 full shows, but something like that on tape. And it was like the true introduction to live dead shows. I had Cornell, Something from October 74, I know, is on there. Uh, something from the 80s. I know he was an 80s fan, so it was very cool. I still thank him very much. That was the ultimate pay-it-forward moment. Is that like the passing of the generational torch from dead fans to other dead fans? Welcome it to the tribe. It was very cool, yeah, because it was kind of like, yeah, it was. But it was it was cool in that because he had to, you know, spend the time to do it. And uh, it was just com- like, you know, free. I mean, I, th- I guess we probably bought our uh, Maxell 90 minute tapes from his shop, but still, you know, it wasn't like, like that was the cool thing about the dead phantom in those days is you'd swap tapes with people. And it was like, you know, you'd just, you know, record one for them. They'd record one for you. And sometimes you just mail it with, you know, and just, a, you know, leap of faith that you were going to get something in return. And more often than not, you did. It was a pretty uh, fun community at the time, but it was very cool of him to let us in that way by giving us a, a head start. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we're in 2003 at Hall of Songs, which is, it's scary that we're getting so close to the modern day. We are 20 years away now from where we are now. And as I said in the open, this was when I was in college, really discovering old music for the first time. Because if you think about it before, it was like we had to buy a CD, $15, all that at the store. And so I wasn't buying CDs from the 70s and the 60s and such. I was buying the music that I liked from that moment. I was on the radio. Uh, but this was the time when you could start to download music, maybe illegally, I guess. And then you would start to really, oh, wow, this exists. This is there. Oh, my. It's actually when I first got back into the Beatles. I was introduced to them at a younger age, and I didn't like them. And then I got reintroduced to them through this. And I was like, oh, well, they have a lot of great songs. Very cool. And then the rest is history. You're now professional. You're engaged. 2003. In fact, do you get married in 2003, Chris? I get married in 2003. When was your wedding? Uh, November 8th, 2003. Stay tuned. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about it right now, we can. But before, I guess before we do that, before we do that, Hall of Songs podcast, every episode, the best 12 songs from each year that we are looking at. We have a whole history of this starting in 1951. We're now in 2003, so you can imagine a lot of songs we've talked about. After we nominate each song, we put those songs on a ballot. That is at hallofsongs.com. You have one week to vote from the moment this episode goes out live, which in this case will be June 4th of 2023. You'll have between then and June 11th, so a whole week, to vote for the songs that you think belong in our Hall of Songs. You vote for up to 10 songs that you think are worthy. We tabulate at the end. If you get two-thirds support, if a song gets two-thirds support, it gets into the Hall of Songs. If a song gets under 35% voter support, it is off the ballot. Anything in between stays on the ballot for another round. We had an election not long ago. It's it's been a couple of weeks now since we've been uh, doing bonus episode, Veterans Committee, so it's been a while there, but... Our last election, our 48th, the recap just came out. And uh, what are the results? We have we have one new song in the Hall of Songs, right, Chris? We do, in fact, have one new song. Should we spoil it or should we uh, uh, force people to go listen? 
Uh, you know what? We usually force people to go listen, but the numbers aren't amazing. Just go ahead and tell people. What How about is. this? Well, we'll do both. We'll okay. say this. It is a Missy Elliott song. Oh, look at that. Missy Elliott actually had the top two songs. Oh, wow. But there, we'll leave it at that. So you now have to go listen, but you're now even more intrigued to go listen. I like how I'm reacting to that news like I didn't know that. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Really? Wow. Tell me more. You've forgotten. You've That's forgotten. Right. It was so long it, ago. It, I've, I've recorded it a while ago. That's right. <laughs> So that's what you do. Voting is between June 4th and June 11th for the Hall of Songs, the 49th election overall. Very, very cool stuff. We have 109 songs in the Hall of Songs right now, so we'll see what happens here. The songs from 2003 will be on that ballot, plus our four Veterans Committee picks from between 1999 and 2002, and then some songs from previous elections that are still on the ballot. They will all be up for election in that next election June 4th to June 11th. All right, let's take a break. We'll be back in a second and we'll talk 2003. All right, so Tim, I said earlier I got married November 8th, 2003. I went rummaging through a a box of keepsakes and check this out. Can you see what this is? That's a CD. It's a jewel case. Can you read the CD? I can't Can read, read it. it no, no, the lighting isn't okay. really well, working. The lighting's well. terrible. This is great. Again, is, great podcasting. It's good stuff, but you'll see. It says the Joneses in the same font as the Beatles uh, from the White <laughs> Album. And then the serial number is 110803. So this is, in fact, our wedding CD. Uh, I made 200 of these, which we gave out at the wedding. This was the favorite. This one is unopened, which Ooh. also you can see here. It's still sealed. Th- that means but you can get it off of eBay do. for a lot of money now, huh? I Meg asked how much she thought we could, or how much I thought we could sell these for. And I said, 45 cents. So I don't know if anyone can outdo us, then let's That's go up from 37. So here's what we're going to do it for our context is I am just going to read you the songs that we played on our, or that we put on our wedding CD. I'm going to do these in chunks and we're going to just quickly gauge your reaction. I'll also say, I've mentioned a bunch of these on the podcast already. So most of this isn't going to be a surprise. So what I did was I actually sort of grouped these. So the first three songs that are on the CD are the dances. It's our first dance, Megan, my first dance, her first dance with her dad. And then my first dance with uh, my mom. And they are, if I fall behind by Bruce Springsteen, the Way You Look Tonight, Frank Sinatra's version, and then Can't Smile Without You, Barry Manilow, which I danced with my mom. Got to get some Manilow in the CD. That's good. That's a good selection of songs. I think the Springsteen one, probably people were a little bit like, what is this? I would imagine. There were probably some people who did understand completely, but I like going with a slightly more popular song for the uh, first dance together. That's me, though. Yeah, we Meg's a big Springsteen fan. I'm glad we did. It's actually one of those songs that, uh, looking back on it, it's actually a lot more about marriage than about you know. A lot of times people play songs that are really just about the wedding and having fun or something sure. like that. It's it has a lot of good words of advice, uh, uh, you know, just uh, for marriage or someone who has now been married for almost 20 years. But anyway, uh, so those are the those the first three. Numbers four and five were our last dance. We basically said, all right, come back one last dance with a couple before we left. And then we sort of snuck on the second one. So they are La Vie en Rose by Louis Armstrong, which we played because we were heading off uh, to France for our honeymoon the next day. And the very last song played at our wedding was California Stars by Wilco from Mermaid Avenue album. Wow. Who, who picked that one? Oh, that was both of us. Come on. Well, Brett Miller even covers yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, speaking of which, so these were the recessional songs that were played. So uh, we got married in one room at the Rittenhouse Hotel in Philadelphia. Everybody had to leave and go to a cocktail hour and then came back. And the room where we had gotten married was actually where the dinner and, uh, uh, you know, the main reception sort of took place. So I mentioned this first song that we listened to right after we got married was 
Question by Old 97s, mm-hmm. which is very recently a Hall of Songs nominee. Second song was All You Need Is Love by the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, three-time Hall of Songs inductee. Uh, the third recessional was a Sean Calvin cover of Naive Melody, This Must Be The Place, oh, also a Hall of nice. Songs uh, nominee, the Talking Heads version. And then last, which was a signal to everyone to get off their ass and get out of the room, we played Lively Up Yourself by Bob Marley. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, were, was, were you... Get out of the room. Get out of the room, but also were you were you going to do recreational drugs afterward? No, although... So I will say that there was... A, the Lively Up Yourself was also in homage to my high school graduation, uh, where there may have been some of that involved, which was we actually played that as a recessional. So when we were sort of... We wanted to do sort of a song that was to signal everybody to get up and go, and I was like, aha, I got just the one. It was a throwback to high school, too. So, <laughs> you know, a little bit of a a little bit of a kicker there. And then finally, a song that was not actually played at our wedding, but one that we just decided we needed to throw on because we loved it was If I Had a Boat, Lyle Love It, which we actually saw him do in concert <laughs> a again a couple song. months ago. That is a great song. He looks old, but he still sounds good. Oh, and he's one of the sweetest people. That is always good. That's always reassuring. Texas guy. If I had a boat, I'd go out on the ocean. And if I had a pony, I'd ride him on my boat. And we could all go. Anyway, so that's it. That was our wedding. Uh, I still got three copies of these if anybody wants it. Two of them are unsealed. One looks like I may have listened to it a couple times. And I did, I think I mentioned this during the one episode. There are um, one quarter of the discs that are out there, 50 of the 200 have a hidden track on them. (laughs) As you would. Uh, I will just say... That just like you, Chris, my wife and I, for our wedding, we gave everybody a CD as well. It was called Hudson Valley Tracks. Uh, the Stevens Malcolm Union was our wedding. And Hudson Valley Tracks had to do with the fact that we lived in the Hudson Valley. We love the Hudson Valley. We're getting married there. And the tracks, as far as trains, we took trains all the time to see one another. So that was part of that. And all the songs were by artists who either lived or were from the Hudson Valley. So Bob Dylan, Forever Young was on there. Todd Rundgren was on there. Uh, Daryl Hall was on there because he lives up there and has a club up there. Uh, all kinds of things. Marshall Crenshaw, like great stuff. So uh, that was that. Uh, maybe I'll show that one day. Uh, maybe when we get, maybe if we ever do 2014, we'll do it. There you go. Okay. We'll get into that. But it's time for 2003. So it's time for the nominees. 12 songs that we think are the best of the year. And we're going to start with 50 Cent. This is in the club from January of 2003. Of course, we talked already about a lot of these songs because if you heard our last bonus episode, we had Andrew Unterberger of Billboard on and we talked about 2003 very much in depth, but more in a short list way. So we did talk about songs that would be eventually nominees. This, AU said, was one of the great pop songs of its time. I'd agree. And it's certainly a really kind of smooth delivery, a good production. Everything here just screams, this is the song that people are going to hear for the next 20 plus years. It will be very memorable. Hits in the club, hits in the radio, hits everywhere. Yeah, I mean, this one is a no-brainer, as we said on the short list. And it was really, really everywhere for a while. 50 Cent is Curtis Jackson III. He was born 75, South Jamaica, Queens. 
His mom dealt drugs and died in a fire when he was eight. He would soon be raised by his grandparents. He boxed. He sold drugs starting at age 12, was arrested with guns and drugs while entering his school. Started rapping at age 20, learned from J Master J, worked with Onyx, had an underground hit with How to Rob, got shot up nine times by Mike Tyson's bodyguard and survived. Got built, went deep into his music and released a mixtape called Guess Who's Back. In 2002, that caught the attention of Mr. Guess Who's Back, back again, Eminem. He'd signed 50 to a deal with Shady Aftermath, his own imprint. Then came the super-hyped Get Rich or Die Tryin'. Into Club was the first single from that. This was number one in the U.S., number three in the U.K., but number one in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this was just every place. Uh, I was, you know, I wasn't listening to necessarily a lot of rap, a lot of hip hop at the time. And obviously there's some stuff that would cross over. But I remember this is the first artist I remember hearing about, like, in that mixtape type phenomenon before he kind of burst on the scene, you know, that it was like even just reading it and and not completely knowing what that meant. You know, to me, a mixtape was, you know, something that you made for uh uh, an object of your affection in like uh, ninth or 10th grade. But uh, then it was sort of like, after that, there's like these a huge number of artists, particularly in the hip hop scene who would just burst because they'd come up with these, you know, the, the mixtapes. Yeah. And for those who might not be as attuned to what that means. So back in the nineties and especially in the early two thousands, you would have artists who were trying to make it on the streets. And so they would, you know, cut a bunch of songs uh, backed by other beats, other people's beats, and they would put it on a tape, a CD, It's called a mixtape. And then they would just street style, send it out to everybody that they could. And the goal was to try to get on the radio, especially Hot 97, Hot 97 in New York City, which was the radio station for hip hop across the country, but especially in New York where hip hop was still king. 50 Cent kind of came out of that world as well. And what I know about 50 and what I remember about this time was it's almost like he was already a mythical creature before you even heard the album, get Richard Jai trying. I just remember hearing about this really bulked up rapper who looked like a tough guy. You didn't want to mess with him, And he already got shot nine times and he survived and he had this hot hit and he was working with Eminem and Dr. Dre. So you instantly wanted to know more about this guy and hear all of his music. And it just so happens that when his first hit happens in the club, it is this, very authoritative, very good time, very swaggering single that has that Dr. Dre evolution, that has that Eminem sort of background, and it's fully formed. This guy, you already know who he is. You know, he's not going to really change much over the course of time. This is 50 Cent, and it's as good as he really gets. Hit the roof on fire, let the motherfucker burn. The talking about money, homie, I ain't concerned. I'm going to tell you what banks do me, because go ahead, switch the style up. You can take the letter, make them want the money pile up. And we can go upside the head with a bottle of blood. Yeah, I mean, and when you've got that kind of reputation coming in and uh, then when you have the lyrics that he has here, I mean, it's clearly, you know, nothing but sort of braggadocio. I mean, that's tough to back up. And clearly he did with the success. And, you know, the and, you know, this isn't the this is certainly not the end of him. It's not like he was a one hit wonder or anything like that. But it, that's a tough thing to do is to have that sort of, you know, reputation preceding you and live up to it. I mean, I'll be honest, like this is maybe a mildly hot take. I'm always surprised a little bit when I go back and listen to this and just how big of a hit it was, because to me the chorus lacks a little bit of something. It does. Like there's yeah. not, it like, it's almost like it's tough. If you're listening from a distance, like there's, there's not a huge sort of, you know, 
difference between the verse and the chorus and it feels like it's almost missing like some kind of hook that goes in there and it's all good and i mean you know the like i love the little i think it's just sort of you know fake strings and things like that that are sort of playing throughout but it's and it's all good but it's like it does feel like maybe it's lacking just a tiny bit of like oomph that comes into the chorus that's very true i you're right about that but i do think the sound of this the production is what really elevates this i mean 50 is great by himself he's very charismatic and really has a great delivery but I love the evolution of Dr. Dre in his life here as starting out as a producer with the G-Funk stuff and really heavy on that funk guitar and the P-Funk samples. And then as you get farther into his career and he's doing work with Eminem and now he's doing this stuff with 50 Cent, he's really cleaned up and streamlined the sound. And now it's much more heavy on the drums and much more heavy on sort of that big synth interplay and they're bigger songs. They sound more even mainstream accessible than his stuff back with Snoop Dogg, even though those were very accessible. This sounds like it doesn't really have a region tied to it. It's a very like sort of international sound, I guess, if you want to call it that, but it was designed to be a big hit. Right. And I think the popularity of it and the impact alone uh, on that sort of mixtape, you know, how it's kind of the first really big mixtape smash rapper, uh, that alone, I think, puts it over the top. All right. One of our patented changes, of course, uh, we're going to move from 50 Cent to the Postal Service. I am delighted. The Postal Service making an appearance here on Hall of Songs. Such great heights. This is really one of my favorites, maybe my favorite song of the whole year, arguably. Holds up so well today. Yeah, I think my most millennial characteristic is it's either my, you know, affection for the OC or <laughs> uh, my affection for the music of Ben Gibbard, uh, which overlap. Yeah, that, I was going to so. say they, they very much overlap. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben Gibbard was born in 76 in Bremerton, Washington, started playing for a band called Pinwheel. But then he started to make his own music under the moniker Death Cab for Cutie. That turned into a full-scale band, becoming highly acclaimed with each release. In 2001, he started contributing vocals for songs by producer Jimmy Tamborello, and that soon became a full-fledged project. They'd recruit former child actress Jenny Lewis of the band Rilo Kylie to add vocals, and they'd call themselves the Postal Service because they'd send each other tracks via said Postal Service so they could finish them. Such Great Heights was their first real release. It did not include Lewis, but instead Jen Wood, formerly of the band Tattletale, was not really a hit. Number 21 on the U.S. Hot 100 single sales charts. So one of those <laughs> funny auxiliary Hot 100-ish charts. I think you talked about this in 03. This is the start of that DIY bedroom pop kind of age where guys are sort of in their locked rooms creating things all by computer and then they're sending out you know what they got to their friend over in another part of the country via the mail like okay finish this or over mp3 finish this and you're getting that back and forth and songs are getting finished much quicker and this this is really the first big sort of moment of that as a huge success and I mean, as, as it doesn't sound raw, it sounds really good. I do think AU pointed this out on the uh, 
uh, on the shortlist show that sometimes the Postal Service's lyrics are a little bit clunky and they don't always pay off, but absolutely not in this song. I mean, this one is one where it like begins with sort of the ultimate close-up imagery of the freckles in the eyes and then there's the idea of you know standing and waving from such great heights and it's like everything looks perfect and it's this uh, it's this perfect sort of summary in a way of a relationship without actually really saying anything too explicitly where it's like the really nitty details it's like perfect it's meant to be and then from far away it's absolutely perfect everybody thinks it's great but maybe in the middle there's like some other things that aren't quite that perfect. You know, it just sort of looks perfect or maybe it seems perfect or maybe it even seems too good to be true. And it's like, I think in, you know, different days, different hours of the same day, you can listen to it and have different reactions to that. And that's just, uh, I just think it's beautifully done. Yeah. It doesn't really come off as heavy handed. It's not overly flowery. It's poetic, but very well said. The idea of, creating a song over the computer or over these very sort of bedroom machinery and then sending it out, that kind of thing. You just hear it throughout here. Sonically, you have the electronic drums and the claps and the farty synth fuzz, the little synth strings, the bloops and the bleeps. It really does sound like it's from a great height, right? This, this record sounds like it's coming from space and it's been sent down to earth and there is just enough of that humanity in there. We talked about that with the shins, I think, not long ago, where it just it, it sounds like it's coming from a place that is a little bit odd, but it also sounds very warm and human. And that is really a testament of a great song. That That's what makes a song so great. You know, if it's too much of a spacey song, maybe it doesn't have the same effect. If it's too much of a romantic, affectionate song, maybe you can't necessarily put it in a bigger context. But this does it just perfectly. Yeah. And I mean, along those lines, it's, you know, it a lot of people probably first heard it uh, when it was covered by Iron and Wine as part of the uh, Garden State soundtrack. And that is so much slower. It is a completely different read on the song in some ways. And I think it sort of seeped into my brain a little bit because whenever it's been a little while since I've listened to the Postal Service version, I go back and listen. I'm always surprised at the pace of it because it is sort of a dreamy love song on one level. But at the same time, like you said, it's got all these sort of moving pieces to it. And there really is sort of a, a driving pace to it. And even the guitar solo, which is has a lot of repetition to it, but it sort of keeps everything moving forward. And it's, uh, I, I think it, it always surprises my head when I sort of turn it back on to, uh, to get that sort of that energy that's there. And especially, ju- you know, juxtaposed against the iron and wine version, which is much more sort of this languid sort of uh, drifting version of the same song, but I think they're both great takes. And as you said, I think that's just, you know, evidence that it is a, that, in addition to being a great track when it's done by the Postal Service, it is this great song that can be adapted in different ways. Well, I think we got to go to uh, Wichita right now. How about Wichita? You want to go to Wichita? <laughs> This is Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes, our third nominee from 2003. You knew it was going to be here, guys. 
I don't like the Wichita line. Can I just say that? I, just, I like he kind of <laughs> came up right. with it for no reason, and it's like I don't know. It's it's a little too forced. That's my uh, only critique. That's my only critique on this one. There you go. And we're moving on. That's right. Everything about it's perfect except for Wichita. The White Stripes, they were in our 2001 episode, Fell in Love with a Girl, followed up with Elephant, 2003. Jack White recorded the entire album with ex-wife Meg on pre-1964 instruments, essentially saying this is a pre-Beatle garage rock record and use zero computers when producing. Now we're starting to get into real Jack White territory here. The first single from Elephant was Seven Nation Army. Jack White wrote the riff. It stuck. He wanted to write a compelling song without a chorus. Again, it stuck. This only went to 76 in the U.S., but number seven in the U.K., thank you to uh, where we are. I think back down to the fourth best podcast in Britain. It's been a while since we've had consistency there. (laughs) We've slipped. We're number one in the U.S. alternative airplay uh, uh, chart, but this song is just ubiquitous. Maybe the most, maybe on the very short list of the most ubiquitous songs of the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is really everywhere. I, you know, along the, I would love to get Chris Malamphy or somebody to come talk about the difference in the U S charts and the UK charts. There must be something going on because you can sort of taste like the, the, well, it maybe it's just <laughs> taste, but I think, but maybe I don't know the way that the UK charts are measured if they're measured differently. And it allows some of these sort of underdog tracks to do a little bit better. But anyway, but yeah, I mean, it really, it's been everywhere. I mean, I, you know, uh, I, we talked about this on the on the shortlist show that it's like you know I go, went to a ton of soccer matches in Europe where when we lived in uh, in London and would travel around it's like every single team has a different chant uh, to the tune of Seven Nation Army it's like you substitute in some player or some event or something like that and it's just constantly there it's at every you know I mean it's played in American sporting events just to get people pumped up and it's like it's become a little bit. I mean, no, it's become a lot cliche, but at the same time, I think when you actually turn it on outside that context and listen to it, it's still really good. And it's almost, and it's like that little riff taken out of it is great, but when it's built into the overall package, it really is just part of this overall superb song. Yeah. The riff itself is, is everything. It's the reason why the song kind of gets to the level that it's at right now, but you're right. Meg White's drumming with sort of that heartbeat, bum, 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 bum. That alone kind of brings it up to this absurd level. And yet it's a very simple record too, right? There's not a lot going on. I mean, it's the two of them, of course, but that's the beauty of the White Stripes is that they can take something that's very, very simple and it can still have this very sort of humanistic sort of, you know, effect to it. You know, you can really feel something out of it. And, you know, lyrically, I mean, it doesn't really, it's it's about, apparently about sort of getting famous and having to sort of be dealt all this gossip and to be the subject of all these rumors and such and to try to get away from that. And then maybe do I fight it, that kind of a thing. And there was certainly a lot of that going on with the White Stripes at the time. But it, it does sound like, like everything sort of adding up with the production, it, it really does get make you feel something. And that's, I think, part of the reason why it has become such an anthem. But um, the line also, a seven nation army couldn't hold me back. is just, is just such a great line. 
Yeah, I mean, I love Jack White, and I love the fact with him that you kind of have to take the, I don't know if it's the good with the bad, but the, you know, the cleverness with the maybe a bit too much. I mean, like what you're saying, deciding that he's going to do the whole thing with no computers, as though anybody when they're listening is going to hear that. Uh, But then it's like, you know, apparently he misheard as a kid Salvation Army and thought they were saying Seven Nation Army. (laughs) Flip that to make this sort of line, Seven Nation Army, you know, pulled the line exactly what you said, and then built this sort of song of defiance around that. I mean, there's an unmistakable cleverness to what he was able to do uh you know i mean i still think he makes some really good interesting music and when he's pushing the envelope i think it's uh that's when he's at his best and again some of it might be a little bit too much but it's it's that creativity that's great all right seven nation army our third nominee our fourth one uh, not really much of a change up what's well, a someone something of a change up i guess <laughs> so when i was listening to these in the playlist Seven Nation Army would sort of go right into this one, and it almost sounded like it was a shift, like there was, it, which was really huh. weird. It's like listen to them back to back. Anyway, it is one that was mentioned on the shortlist show, but uh, this may surprise some people. Evanescence with Bring Me to Life. I knew this song. I This is not one that was like on my radar at all at the time that it came out. And I'm glad I have spent the last you know few days going back and re-listening to this. Because this one is one that I've been pleasantly surprised by. Yeah, we should, we should talk about that certainly at length. Little Rock, Arkansas, pianist and singer Amy Lee met guitarist Ben Moody as young teens at a Christian youth camp. They wanted to make dramatic alternative, almost metal music with choirs and strings, name themselves Evanescence, and put out a bunch of EPs. They were signed to Wind Up Records. Their demos were discovered while working at Arden Studios. Shout out to Big Star. They moved to LA and worked on their material for two years before nearly getting to put together their debut album, but Wind Up wanted them to bring in a full-time male singer. They said no. They were dropped, moved back to Little Rock, but then the label took them back long as they could have a male rapper on their first single, Bring Me to Life. They did agree to that. Paul McCoy of the band 12 Stones was brought in to be that rapper. The song was put on the soundtrack to the film Daredevil, shout out to Ben Affleck, and would become the band's debut single, number five in the U.S., number one in the U.K., number one on the U.S. airplay chart. I left New Metal around 2002, let's say, I was getting older, I was discovering older music, and I realized that a lot of new metal sucked. And I think that's part of it. I think I I wasn't a theater kid. I didn't really care for overly dramatic music like that. And maybe I wasn't a fan of the rapping. I just did not care for this song. I did not care for the sound. I was gone from this. So I really stayed away from Evanescence and all kind of gothic and hard rock from this era completely for many, many, many years. And as AU brought this up and said, this is a really big time track for many reasons. Listen to it, listen to it. And I realized, yeah, he's right. He's totally right. I'm a little bit older, just a little bit too old to get this one. So I finally become Chris and I don't get some of the music of the use. 
And here we are. <laughs> and when I say you, I mean like me, right? So here we are. This gets on the nominee list. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool parts to this. I mean, I think the vocal is just really incredible. And it doesn't, it could be, it, it could be taken in a lot of different directions. I mean, what stood out to me, and I'll, you know, uh, uh, I'll avoid trying to throw too much shade, but uh, this was to me, it's like the counter Foo Fighters in that like <laughs> what I said when we were talking about Everlong, which was like, I don't buy it. I get that there's supposed to be this emotion that never quite comes across. And it's like, this is the opposite of that to me, that it's like, I completely buy what, she, that what she's selling here. And I completely get the feeling. And it's like, there are some lines in this late in the song that it's like, I completely am bought in. And I'm like, she's pouring her heart out. She's putting her heart on her sleeve. And it works for me. I, I was really surprised when I listened to that. I will say there's parts of it that don't work as well. I mean, you mentioned the rap that was kind of, you know, forced on them and it's like, it doesn't quite, you know, fit in it, it in the way that it necessarily should, even in kind of like a new metal song. It's not like a Lincoln park. And, yeah. Right. And it's like, in this made that this was actually like number 43, I think. And Rolling Stone had a list earlier this year of the top, whatever top hundred or top 200 heavy metal songs of all time. And this was like number 43. And I was surprised by that. Cause to me, it's like, I'm not completely sure that it even wants to be a heavy metal song. You know, it's like, it does have some moments of real sort of hard rock to it, but it's like, it, it bounces all over the place a little bit in, in ways that mostly I think are good, but I'm not sure it ever completely commits to being one thing. I feel like this is as metal as Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Like it's at that, it's like, it has the, it has a metal vibe to it, but it is, it, it belongs on the, on the stage. It belongs on Broadway. This is a theater kid song, right? This, this has that sort of like, I think that's why I never really cared because I don't buy the emotion as much. Um, That said, her vocal is very emotive and I get that. And I'm putting myself in the head of a slightly younger, maybe more you know, drama focused kid and okay, I can totally understand and buy it. And I can see how Amy Lee would be sort of a, uh, someone to look up to or someone to sort of relate to in that sense. And plus, as a, you had mentioned in our shortlist episode, women were not getting any sort of attention at this time in rock music. There weren't really any women in the rock world at all. They weren't getting the chance to be played. And here's a song that starts out with this piano and a female singer. And so it could absolutely not work. It could absolutely never make it. But credit to Evanescence for pulling it off. Credit to Amy Lee for being such a good vocalist and for really selling the song in her way. And they had the look to go with that too. They had that sort of goth look, which was starting to really become big. Hot topics all over every mall in America. Kids feeling like they were not being heard in, at home in school and things. It played to that really well. and 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 that's what makes this partially what makes this as big of a nominee as it is. Let's quiet it down a little bit. We're going to go to New York City here, and we're going to get into the indie scene a little bit here. It's Yeah, Yeah, Yes. This is Maps from April of 2003. First time we get to talk about Yeah, Yeah, Yes. I'm straight. Say, 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 oh, say, 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 oh, say, say. 
it's funny. It's like we went from younger millennial music with Evanescence to older millennials slash kind of Gen X music with Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. It's right. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, this was like that New York scene uh, with the Strokes LCD. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think it's sort of a half step backwards into this Gen X world. Kind of similar songs, though. So we'll get to that in a second. Singer and pianist Karen Orzelek. This is New York around 2000. Better known as Karen O. Meets guitarist and keyboardist Nick Zinner. They immediately make music together, settle on a trash art rock band, soon recruiting a drummer in Brian Chase, a friend of Karen O's from Oberlin College. Now they're called Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. They tour with the White Stripes and the Strokes, both nominees. Uh, Strokes have a song on the Hall of Songs. Released an EP, got onto the South by Southwest bill, put out their first LP, Fever to Tell. That is 2003, and Maps is on that. The song was written by Karen O about her relationship with Angus Andrew of the band The Liars. Never confirmed, but it suggested Maps is an acronym. My Angus, please stay. So this song to me, it's a completely underrated earworm where it doesn't necessarily have that sort of characteristic of it of being like really, really hooky. But whenever I listen to this song, it's caught in my head for the rest of the day. And it's like and I think it's just got that this great hook and it's just this catchiness to it. And I never I don't think I ever realized until uh until Andrew pointed it out on the shortlist episode that there's like how little is actually said. Mm -hmm. If you look at the lyric sheet, it's like, it's really short in and of itself. And most of it is just repetition. And I think the reason that it never hit me is because she just owns it and she kills the performance. And there's this sort of like snarling vocal that's delivered. And even though she's saying the same thing, she's saying it in slightly, you know, slightly different ways throughout the song. And, it just it's enough that it just sort of gets lodged in your brain in a really good way and she doesn't really need to say anything more she's able to convey everything that's like supposed to be in the song uh in those sort of you know i'll say simplistic because i do think there's some the simplistic lyrics it's one of those records where all the things are done really really well everything has a very purposeful there's a purpose to everything and everything's executed perfectly Karen O, as you said, there are hooks in what she's singing. There's also hooks in that sort of harmonic pattern that's behind her. There's hook in the guitar riff that da na 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 da na da. That yeah, there's a hook there. And they're all just like kind of offsetting each other really well. But there's also a sense of great drama here. This is kind of the Evanescence comparison I'm making, whereas Evanescence is really, really up to 11. This is brought down quite a bit into that sort of intimate New York City club kind of feel. But the urgency of the ringing guitar, the rolling drum pattern, and how Karen O delivers her vocal in this very Chrissy Hines style, of course. I mean, the comparisons have been made. It just feels important. The whole thing feels important. And almost from the moment you first hear it, you're like, oh, there's something that I have to really listen to here. I have to sit down and kind of dissect each part because each part is executed so well and has such great purpose. Yeah, I think uh, Yeah, Yeah's are kind of one of those bands that uh, 
I, I like to think of that they won the war, which is that they didn't have quite as big of a moment uh, in the early 2000s as some of the other New York bands did. And the Strokes and some others were sort of, you know, had a little bit more crossover success, sold some more albums. But that one, they still they come out looking OK today. I mean, we mentioned this on the, the last episode, too, where there's the book uh, slash TV show Meet Me in the Bathroom and Karen O comes across uh, reasonably well. And sort of the this band comes across as being a little bit more together than some of the other ones, but also that the sound is one that still continues. I think there's a lot of bands today that are trying to sound like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs including them themselves. I mean, their 2002 album still owes a lot, even going back to some of their uh, their older stuff. And I, I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way here, but it's like, because I think that what they were doing in 2003 was the type of stuff that holds up well 20 years later and still sounds good. And there's no reason for them to do anything dramatically different when they're still making really good music, as opposed to some of the bands. And, and I don't necessarily mean the Strokes or anybody in particular, but there are a lot of bands that sort of burst into the New York scene that kind of fizzled a little bit or that were very much of an era. And if you dial up their music now, you're kind of like, ah, yes, that is 2003. Whereas, you know, XPN plays this song a decent amount still. And when this comes on, there's moments at the beginning where I'm like, where I think for a second that it might be a new song. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. OK, got it. You know, this is actually 20 years old. Okay, yeah, yeah, yes. Maps are fifth nominee from 03. Chris? Our sixth nominee is... Crazy in Love by Beyonce featuring Jay-Z. Beyonce, I suppose, sort of making her solo debut, right? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is kind of where it really begins officially, in a sense. We all know her as part of Destiny's Child. Well, as far as this podcast is concerned, we know her as part of (laughs) Destiny's Child. Hall of Songs nominee, Say My Name. They followed up that album, The Writings on the Wall, with the massive hit album Survivor in 01. By that time, it was kind of apparent that the group wasn't going to be together for too long. Beyonce especially was destined for superstardom. They announced a hiatus in 2001. Beyonce would immediately jump to Hollywood, co-starring in Austin Powers and Goldmember as lead love interest Foxy Cleopatra. She was on a track with then-boyfriend and two-time Hall of Songs nominee Jay-Z called 03 Bonnie and Clyde. And that served as a prelude of sorts for her solo debut album, Dangerously in Love. This was the lead single. Samples the Chilites Are You My Woman Tell Me So. US number one, UK number one launches Beyonce's solo career for real. And it's like you couldn't think of a better way to launch it, but also you could hear it's a thousand percent Beyonce. The style's there, the form is there, she's there, but knowing what she's done over the past 20 plus years, 20 years. She's had such a great evolution, but this feels right at home in her discography. I mean, you mentioned the sample uh, that those horns are just killer. Mm-hmm. And it's like to me, it's like there's a whole we've we've talked a lot about samples and the way that they're used in some of these in some prior episodes. There's some other songs in this episode where I think that might come up. But uh, 
going back even to like uh, Jay-Z with Hard Knock Life, where there's these like different ways that you kind of can claim music and sort of use it in different ways. Like I'm thinking about like something like The Rain, where it's sort of like in the same spirit and sort of moving something forward versus something like Can I Kick It, where you use the sample uh, and kind of turn it on its head a little bit. But this is like something even a little bit more different. It's making this track that is very much early 2000s. And you said very much all Beyonce, but then also somehow channeling the early 70s in this really, really perfect way. And I mean, I don't know. There's just that there is there's a talent to that that I don't know if it's always appreciated that uh, in able to sort of pull that out and just basically say, like, you know, yes, we're going to sort of glue these two things together and have it work. Beyonce's delivery has always sort of felt like it would be at home in the early to mid seventies. You know, she has that sort of old soul kind of style to her that really works well when it's up against a sample or up against, you know, really great old school dance music. Like she's been doing recently. The, the sound of this is part of that, but it's also part of where R and V had been heading where you had destiny's child, kind of combining singing and rapping together, not really calling it rapping, more singing, but there's definitely a fusion of both things happening. And that's sort of in that evolution of Mary J. Blige to Aaliyah, where they're both combining the rapping and the singing and doing it in a way that is injecting soul as well. And here, Beyonce's is kind of injecting a 70s soul kind of vibe into it. And it really does bring it out in this really colorful way. Plus, connecting to the rest of Beyonce's career, you know, that uh-oh, 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 no, no, like that little hook, that vocal hook, you hear that throughout her career. I think of single ladies and the what uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Beyonce has this neat little way of kind of using her voice in these very little ticky kind of ways to deliver these great earwormy hooks. The Beatles would do that. Michael Jackson did that a lot. Beyonce's kind of in that great line of these pop superstars who know how to use every bit of their vocal quality, their vocal sort of their palette to create colors and songs that we didn't even think were there. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, that nod to the early mid seventies is right on. And in addition to the sample, which is an early seventies track that it's like, there is this track does owe its roots like directly to that. And what I think is cool about it is that there's like a feminist spin to this where so many of those, particularly in that sort of soul realm, there was like a lot of, you know, male artists, there were a lot of male like groups and there were, it was far harder for a woman to sort of break through in that kind of scene. And in this one, it's like, you know, Beyonce is able to claim it, make it her own and basically say like, it's okay for her to be the one that's acting a little bit stupid when she's fallen in love and things like that. And I think there's something that is, there's a very sort of knowing like, you know, wink, 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 nudge, nudge thing to that, that is claiming that part of 1970s music, making it her own and also moving it forward a little bit. Absolutely. Well, that's Crazy in Love by Beyonce featuring Jay-Z, our sixth nominee from 2003. And that brings us to the halfway point of all of songs, 03. Halftime means we talk about ourselves more. So (laughs) if you're listening, thank you so much. We love you. Keep listening. Vote 
between June 4th and June 11th of 2023 for the songs that you think are Hall of Songs worthy. We have the 12 songs that we're talking about here in 03. We have four songs from between 99 and 02 that we had in our Veterans Committee episode. Go back and listen to that for those nominees. And then we also have songs from previous ballots that are still up for election. They are potentially still in the running. We have song from 99. We have 01 and 02 represented. We even have a song from 97 on that ballot. So between June 4th and June 11th, you can vote for the songs that you think are worthy of the Hall of Songs. And Chris, get the word out. I mean, we're now at a point in the podcast where if we get the word out to more people, what are we going to do? I don't know. But (laughs) where can people find us so that they can get the word out to their friends? Get the word out. Find us on any place that you can find podcasts if you want to come download us. And if you have friends who listen to podcasts on, you know, Spotify or whatever, do that. Uh, Find us on the Apple Podcast app and uh, rate us, review us. That does help more people find us. So maybe people go back and listen to episodes uh, from where we're talking about stuff that happened uh, 30 years before 2003 or whatever. Uh, And then find us on social media, uh, Twitter. You can find us. you know, more than any place else, but we do have an Instagram page and a Facebook page and things like that. You can send us messages there and all that stuff. And if all else fails, just go to the website, hallofsongs.com and send us a message or uh, shoot us an email, hallofsongspod at gmail.com. All right. Anything more to talk about? So our friend Libby Cudmore, friend of the pod, former guest, she does a thing on Saturday nights called Record Saturday, where she you know, listens to an album and uh, interacts with people on Twitter. Uh, she's going to an Elvis Costello concert on Ooh. July 1st. So I am taking over for re- her on Record Saturday. So I need an album to do. So we got some time. I taunted her over the weekend and said I was going to do uh, something, uh, an early Jimmy Buffett album, but Ooh. I'm not really committed to that. So... Let me know, uh, Tim. You can, Tim, come through with suggestions, listeners. Any suggestions? I want to do a single album, like nothing like a double album. Something you know, standard, ten to twelve tracks, forty forty five minutes. Okay, a real standard good album. I don't want anything too crazy. Uh, the one I was like, I had Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes up there, which was one of uh, like that, but that that only has seven tracks. Might not be quite enough. So throw me some options, Tim. Listeners, I got, throw me I got some a couple. Too. I got a couple okay. right off the bat here. I got here we go. Cold Spring Harbor. Piano Man, Turnstiles, The Stranger, You're 50 just Second making Street, Libby mad, Glass Tim. Houses, <laughs> Nylon Curtain, Innocent Man, The Bridge. We could even do Stormfront or River of Ooh, Dreams. You're just Any making of those Libby mad. So first of all, <laughs> I should say that the, the only sort of caveat is that it does have to be something that I own on vinyl. And of all those you listed, I do own an innocent man on vinyl. Mm, so okay. uh, we could do that. We'll one. think of some anyway, things. So that would, Listeners, that would, email like, us. I, I pretty much Buffett's entire catalog is fair game. Certainly the Beatles' entire catalog is fair game. But I want to do something, you know, a little bit. I don't know. I was trying to think of something maybe Philly-centric. Uh, I don't know. Shoot me some options. Certainly by the time this comes out, I got plenty of time to make my decision. Hallofsongspod at gmail.com to give us suggestions. Back to the podcast. Something tall and strong Make it a hurricane Before I go insane It's only half past twelve But I don't care It's five o'clock somewhere (sighs) What time is it, Tim? I didn't think we would have to do this But Chris It's five o'clock somewhere Alan Jackson and for the second time in Hall of Songs history, 
Jimmy Buffett. So uh, he was right. AU was right. This is a very influential song. It was a very popular song. For those reasons alone, it has quite a bit of merit. It's even impactful. We'll get to that too. You can't deny it, I guess. You can't. Do you know Jimmy Buffett is a billionaire? This was in the news recently. He is now officially a billionaire. So here's my question. Americans who are now billionaires, how many people do you think had a lower net worth than Jimmy Buffett when they were 30 years old? My guess is zero, but I don't know for sure. You think zero? Yeah, I, there you know there are a decent number of athletes who, but most of them I'm thinking at least were in the you know positives by the time they were in their 30s because they're athletes and they were probably doing some good things when they were younger. I mean, Margaritaville didn't come out until Buffett was 31, so like he was basically like a struggling country singer who was busking in New Orleans and trying to get people to buy albums. You're saying there's still time for me? There is, Tim. Okay, good. Maybe not to be a billionaire, but half billion. Half okay. billion right. is in hey, your sight. I'll take it. I'll take it. Alan Jackson was born in 1958 in Newton, Georgia. He was in a band called Dixie Steel in his 20s and then decided to pursue music full-time by moving to Nashville. He worked in the mailroom of the Nashville Network and through a chance meeting between his wife and Glenn Campbell, ultimately got a deal with Arista Records' Nashville imprint. 1990 debut album Here in the Real World did well for him, kicking off a very successful career as arguably the genre's leading hat act. By 2003, he had released 11 studio albums and had just come off his biggest pop hit, the post-9-11 record Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning. Buffett we talked about in 77 with his biggest hit Margaritaville. He was able to coast through the next 25 years, releasing 17 albums, all pretty much about beaches, sailing, drinking, and relaxing. With Jackson's second greatest hits album coming up, he needed some new material and he wanted to record a duet with Buffett. He found It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, a song about getting the happy hour and written by Jim Moose Brown and Don Rollins. They initially offered it to fellow hat act Kenny Chesney, but he said no. Jackson took it, though, and did it with Buffett. Number 17 in the U.S., number one on the country songs list for quite a few weeks. You like how I just got through that Buffett part really quick? (laughs) You know the name of his box set, right? Please tell me. Boats, beaches, bars, and ballads. I was so, so close. Uh, summary I was there was so pretty close. close. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what the name of his box set was. So <laughs> I was a proud owner of his box set on CD. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. What? What? What can I say? I am an unapologetic Jimmy Buffett fan. Uh, but I covered most of that back in 1977, and his best stuff was certainly in the, that lead up to Margaritaville. I think Alan Jackson's really underappreciated country singer. I mean, he had, like he had some crossover success, as you mentioned. I mean, this song was undoubtedly his biggest hit. He is really like one of those sort of steady presences in country music who has just delivers hit after hit. And he just has this great sort of understated voice where when you hear him, uh, and this song is a terrific example of it. it sounds so effortless it's like it is one of those where it just kind of sounds like he, he he's not even really singing and then if you try to go sing along with him you're going to fail miserably because he hits every note perfectly and he's able to sort of carry notes perfectly and uh, i mean it's just a beautiful delivery by alan jackson and uh, again i'm like i am really i'm always excited to talk about jimmy buffett but i am mostly excited to do this one because we get to chat about alan jackson well, AU made the case on our shortlist show about this song, and it makes a lot of sense. This is when beach country really gets going, beach country being a genre that would really take off 
in the 2000s as you get Kenny Chesney and other artists like that really playing up the idea of partying on the beach and relaxing on the beach and escaping to the beach and promoting Corona and other things. And here you have Mr. Beach and Jimmy Buffett and Mr. Country and Alan Jackson, who is really this sort of like old school kind of hat act, traditional country presence in the 90s hooking up at this critical moment because Buffett is just about to expand his Margaritaville brand. He only really had the one restaurant up until this point. Now it's about to become a nationwide brand. This probably gave his career a huge boost, one that he even didn't really think would happen. And like Margaritaville, this song birthed an expression, a way of life. It's also slick to introduce Buffett two-thirds into the song. It kind of puts Jackson over, too, as the one sort of owning this idea of it's time to get out of work. It's time to have some fun, have a couple of drinks, get your mind off of things. And then you bring in Buffett to kind of close the deal. It's like the perfect one-two punch. I could pay off my tab, pour myself in a cab, and be back to work before two. At a moment like this, I can't help but wonder, what would Jimmy Buffett do? Funny you should ask, Al. <laughs> I'd say, oh. Something tall and strong, make it a hurricane before I go Although I will say, I don't think Alan Jackson seemed too happy to be talking to Jimmy Buffett in the coda of this record. Could you be <laughs> more excited, Alan Jackson? What is what a I wouldn't want to be hanging out with him at a bar. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Come on, I told you the that was why I brought up uh Alan Jackson back in the uh the other episode where he delivers this perfect Yeehaw! With absolutely no emotion whatsoever. This is the guy who gave us uh, Chattahoochee, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I would be remiss. Uh, this being uh, uh, again 2003 when Meg and I got married. If I did not point out a lyrical foible, which Meg is always quick to uh, bring up, and I actually think I pointed this out to her first, and now he can never hear the song and not do it. But it is uh, obviously in the chorus many times. He says. It's only half past 12, but I don't care. It's five o'clock somewhere. And it is the <laughs> fact that there is the precision of the half past 12, which makes it think that it is 1230. Right. And then going into it is five o'clock somewhere, which is, I know there is in Mumbai, they're like, you know, at a half hour difference, but I don't think it's a perfect, you know, four and a half hours difference. They don't need the half past 12. It could have been, it's only two o'clock, but, but I don't care. Something. I'm going to defend this. Like, I get I'm the gonna, attitude. I'm going to defend this. I get it. Yeah, but it's, it's a state like, of mind. Five o'clock is a state it of is mind. A state of, but that's why you don't need to be so precise about the half past twelve. Well, it just that's makes it makes for a good lyric. It, it really like it comes off the tongue well. It works. I'm not kidding, but it's like it's just I'm a defending, little bit I, something a little bit. I, I actually think this is I actually think this is like a relatively good record. I think it's a well written song. It's fun. And not too fun, but it, it's it's a <laughs> nice song and, and it definitely, you know, it it, it works for every reason. And yes, Jimmy Buffett appearing like Snoop Dogg as the featured rapper is a is a great moment in uh, country, whatever this is, history. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, it's better than yours. Damn right, it's better than yours. I could teach you, but I have to charge. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, it's better than yours. Damn right, it's better than yours. I could teach you, but I have to charge. Well, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> So moving on to uh, one that came up in the shortlist episode. This will be fun to talk about. Khalees with Milkshake from August of 2003. Yeah, from uh, sipping down margaritas at the beach bar at 5 o'clock somewhere to shaking your ass. Brings all the, is, is it about an ass? 
Is it about the other side? What is, what is, has anybody really ever sort of gone deep into really investigated what the milkshake itself was? There's a few theories out there, all euphemistic and, uh, uh, you can read it a couple different ways. I think. I'm sure. I'm sure people are going to me right now and going, "Tim, are you an idiot? Like, what what's wrong with you?" But you know, I I don't know. I, I anyways, Kalise Rogers, 79, Harlem. Her name is a portmanteau for father Kenneth, a jazz musician, and mother Evelis, a fashion designer. She went to private school, played lots of instruments, got kicked out of her house for bad behavior. She was in an R and B trio in high school. Did background vocals for the rap group Gravediggers. Though through that, she met Pharrell Williams of the Neptunes. There he is again. She got signed to Virgin Records and had a publishing deal that split rights between her, Williams, and Chad Hugo. Her debut was 1999's Kaleidoscope. Did better in Britain than in in America. Had the hotly received single, Caught Out There. Her follow-up was 2001's Wonderland, but by that time, she was dropped by Virgin. The album didn't do well. So she simply signed on to Williams and Hugo's Star Trek label, kept up with some hits in the UK, got to make a third album, Tasty, in 2003. The Neptunes were all over it. Milkshake, written by Williams and Hugo, was the first single. Number three in the US, number two in the UK. I said this in the shortlist episode. I'm not really a big fan of this record. I think it's a little too sort of forced and maybe a little too cutesy, but... I also get that it was really popular and remains this very impactful song just because Milkshake is a meme. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I'm, but I'm really glad that I went back and really listened to this track as opposed to just sort of having it, you know, something that I knew existed. Because I think that at the same time, this manages to be both overrated and underrated, you know, if that makes any sense. And that like, I think you're right. There's sort of this meme aspect to it. And there's just sort of the refrain of my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. But then there is the whole sort of production, which I think is a lot more interesting than I ever really gave it credit for, where mm-hmm. it's not kind of completely over the top and bombastic and in your face. It's a little bit stripped down. And even like lyrically, it, it's not this sort of over the top sort of thing. Like there's some cleverness to it and there's like a little some plays on words and things like that. So I, I guess this is one where it's like if it hadn't become such a meme and become such a thing, I think you'd go back and listen to it now and be like, wow, this is really an interesting track. I'm glad this is here. And the the flip side is that it's sort of remembered for being something different than what I think it ultimately is when you go back and listen to it. But I also, I have never gone really deep into her catalog, but I do understand that this is not necessarily her, her best work from, I, I know you and a, you were talking about this. I've read other people who have said that, that it's like, there's other stuff that perhaps may be, you know, more appropriate for her to be remembered for. Yeah. Kaleidoscope, Kalise was here, both really, really good. Pharrell on the production here, I mentioned this in the shortlist episode that there's a, he's not taking a full leap ahead here. He's kind of taking a half step. You're really going to get the next evolution, next step in the evolution of Pharrell and the Neptune's production when you get to drop it like it's hot by Snoop Dogg, which is just, I mean, we'll get there when we get there, but Pharrell is sort of making his way to that very super minimalistic thing. And this is minimalistic in a lot of ways. It's a tasty, forgive the pun, synth line, almost a Caribbean drum pattern that just kind of rolls on throughout the record. And that bell ringing is actually, I think, a really key part of the record. It's great because I think of, oh, ding, your milkshake's ready. Come and get it, right? So there's that sort of double meaning to that little that little ding that's really cute. Watch if you're smart. 
so it's it's getting there, right? But it's not quite that next big full step. As AU, and I, I mean, I agree with him in our shortlist episode, fronting that uh, Pharrell does, uh, his own solo work, I think has a little bit more of that forward approach with that very sort of Blade Runner-y synth just brought down to that very simple level. But that said, this also has the popularity. It also has that meme ability. It is a record that you put it on anywhere in America, maybe anywhere in the world, and you know exactly what it is, and you're about ready to sing along with it. So for those reasons, I think it kind of leaps over. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think I would feel differently about it, I think, if I were to go back and just completely roll my eyes and be like, oh, it's completely overbaked and all that. But it's like, that's not the case. It is it is good. And maybe it's sort of a little bit, you know, a little bit trite in some pieces. But I think that's OK, because I think there is really a solid track here. That's Milkshake by Khalees, our eighth nominee for the Hall of Songs from 2003. Count it down, Andre. One, two, three. Uh. My baby don't mess around because she loves me. This is Hey Ya, Hey Ya by Outcast from the album Speaker Box The Love Below, the most unavoidable song of 2003-2004 for great reasons, right? This is this is a Hall of Songs nominee. This is a big one. This is a massive one. I was there's a Beatles podcast I listen to and uh, one of the running gags is whenever they're like, you know, they're breaking down Beatles songs and the one guy always will sort of break in at some really tender moment and go, "Who's this?" <laughs> and I always feel like, uh, you know, uh, that like with Outcast here, it's about the time and now that they have two songs inducted and that it's about to be like, who's Outcast? I don't know. If, have I heard of these guys? Outcast followed up Stankonia from 2000 with a wild concept. Andre 3000 and Big Boy would record their own separate albums and combine them into one big package. Big Boys was the more Southern flavored and traditionally rap focused speaker box. And Andre's was the Prince influenced, often psychedelic and tin pan poppy, The Love Below. It was essentially the Beatles' white album taken to its most logical format and done so because Andre and Big Boy were starting to explore life outside the group dynamic. The albums were both released in 2003, each getting a lead single that came out on the same day. Big Boys was The Way You Move, Andre's was Hey Ya. This went to number one in the U.S., number three in the U.K. So we talked about this in the shortlist episode. Weird, weird record, but I mean, it's undeniable, really. Yeah, I mean, it, again, I was sort of joking about the Outcast thing, and it's like we've pro- we've already beaten this to death. Talk about a group that basically just says forget genres right that is basically like this is like yeah i mean yes they are frequently referred to as a rap duo and there is no doubt that that is true but like this is rock music it's like dance music it's got everything it's like 70s throwback and it's all just sort of like 
it's like they don't really care about that stuff. Like, you know, sometimes you'll listen to a record. I was just listening to Josh Rouse earlier where he has an album called 1972, where he's intentionally trying to make it sound like sort of, a, you know, like this 70s sort of AM gold thing. But like for Outkast, it was just like they were making the music that they wanted to make at the time. And some of it was borrowed from other stuff, but it wasn't like, oh, let's throw in this because it sounds like the 70s. Let's throw in this because it sounds like the 80s. It's like, no, let's just throw in this because it sounds good. And it really has made it into this sort of, you know, eternal package. Well, there's really no precedent for what they're doing here with Hey Ya, right? And this is really Andre 3000. This is his project primarily he's obviously working with big boy to sort of get critique and sort of work on it but this is really an andre 3000 song but this leads with an acoustic guitar which is not something that you hear in rap at all and we talked about beck and fiona apple and some other artists back in the 90s who were really the ones who we were talking about transcending genre and doing their own thing they're coming from a rock place first or a more jazzy or classical place first or whatever, and then incorporating different things into their work. Whereas Outkast is coming from the rap world and very much the rap world. They were doing grimy Atlanta swampy rap in the nineties. And they get to this point where they want to do their own thing and they're able to incorporate all these different sounds into it because they have that ability. They have that talent. They have that ex- expression. They know how to do it. You know, and I also think we talked about this with a you and how this is very much like a Prince moment. He was very influenced by Prince with the love below. And I love what he said about the love below, not being a perfect album, not even being maybe a great, great, great album, sort of being a great album. That's very flawed, like around the world in a day by Prince, which I think they're very similar and where you have this psychedelic sound and it works a lot of times and then sometimes it really falls off the cliff. But you have that one song that just, like everything else, it just overshadows everything else. And there it's Raspberry Beret, Hall of Songs inductee. This is the one for that album, Hey Ya. And there are a lot of similarities. There is an acoustic guitar sort of driving both songs. There's this huge pop sensibility. There's imagery uh, in the bridge in this one, of course, that's really out there and weird. And it's very just Andre. Whereas with Prince, you hear Prince in all of his lyrical imagery. They're very similar. He really achieves something that has that Prince aesthetic but does not sound like Prince would have ever done it, right? This sounds like his own thing. Beyonce's and Lucy Lou's Shaking baby dolls Get on the floor Yeah, I mean, it really, like you said, it really is its own thing, but it's like with that, those influences, I mean... Like, I don't know if there's anything that is kind of more iconic uh, from this era of music than that chorus. In particular, those sort of like, I don't even know what it is. Is it sort of like synthetic bells? Is it like the, that comes in with sort of the, yeah. uh, you know, it's like you like you can look it up, though. You can, people can play it on the xylophone, but I have to think it was probably a synthesizer sort of tuned up to sound like a xylophone. You have this intense sort of ferocity, this fast pace that owes a debt obviously to B.O.B. and it's got that just sort of frantic pacing to it but then it cuts into the chorus and like that to me is the most sort of emblematic thing of really any of these songs from this era that again I don't know even know what the sound is necessarily but it's like you hear that you're immediately taken back to the early 2000s when you heard this but then it's also this track that just sort of lasted and become basically a staple of 
you know, it, it is just a staple. Coming out of my cage and I've been doing just fine. God, I gotta be down because I want it all. It started out with a kiss, had it in a black dance. It was only a kiss, it was only a kiss. Now I'm falling asleep and she's calling a cab while he's having a smoke and she's taking a drag. Now they're going to bed and my stomach is sick and it's all in my head, but she's touching his chest now. Another 2003 nominee that should be no surprise, The Killers, with Mr. Brightside. I am excited about this. Well, maybe a surprise to people who didn't realize that this originally came out in 2003. People, there might be people Fair. thinking, "Wait, well, this is like two hour, two two years ahead." What are they doing here? <laughs> Fair. The Killers, Brandon Flowers, singer songwriter, was fired from the synth pop group Blush Response and decided he wanted to front a massive rock band. Living in Las Vegas, he brought in guitarist Dave Kuning and formed a project naming it The Killers after a fictional band in a New Order song. Once formed in 2001, they recorded two songs, one of them being Mr. Brightside. They played a lot in Vegas while writing and polishing up their original material before finally catching fire and getting their demo passed around. They signed with the UK label Lizard King Records, Jim Morrison. By 2003, they were Flowers on vocals and keys, Curing on guitar, Mark Stormer on bass, and Ronnie Venucci Jr. on drums. The Killers would release the first single, Mr. Brightside, to UK radio in summer 2003, and it did gain a lot of traction in the UK. Number 10 over there. It wouldn't get to the US until a little bit later on where it got to number 10 as well. I mean, this is like the millennial national anthem, right? This is right up there. Uh, yeah, I missed the bright side, you know, like this is it. <laughs> but I actually, I mean, I think this one is sort of crossed over where they're, the killers have this sort of, I mean, I mentioned it on the, the shortlist one. I called them the best singles band of all time, which I stand behind, but uh, because they sort of steal enough from Springsteen, like Gen Xers love the killers too. Uh, and then they've had this ridiculous success overseas. I mean, Mr. Brightside is the biggest song in the UK forever. Uh, that it's like they do sort of cross over. Like to me, they're far less millennial than someone like Death Cab for Cutie. This is absolutely a throwback to the 80s. As much as he wanted to be a big rock star, he still had that new wave blood in him, that new order blood in him. The synthesizer is really driving the action. Not so much a vertical song as New Order would do, but certainly has that vibe to it. There's a bass in here, and it rumbles, kind of hums the record along. It doesn't really set the tone. It's a very colorful record, too. It sounds like a late night. It sounds like something that you're going to you know, sing at the top of your lungs late at night. Uh, It has a very sort of hard-on-your-sleeve, emotional sort of thing going on with, of course, the singer who is getting all frustrated and, and sweaty because the girl is with another guy and doesn't like it. But... When he sings the price, you know, that moment, <laughs> if you're in a bar with a bunch of millennials late at night on a Saturday or something, you've had some drinks and that hits. Oh, like I'm telling you, this is, this is right there. It's, 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 it's got that anthemic quality. Uh, I was in love with the killers, love with the song when it really hit 2004 or so. I mean, this is so good.
pointed out the fact that the song is basically just the same thing done twice, right? Yes, that yeah. It's basically, it's like, and I don't know which one's the verse and which one's I the I think chorus. it's really effective. I think it's really... So I was about to say, I think that it is the idea. I mean, like what you said is like, I mean, there is a very clear thing that's going on. And again, it's one of these things where they're able to say it without saying it, where it is like, he's had too much to drink and she's not returning his calls and he just goes down this rabbit hole. And the fact that he does it twice in a row and does it twice in a row pretty much verbatim, I think makes it much more effective and is one of those, like, I just think it's a really cool sort of, you know, trope. It's a really good device that does work and get it across. I mean, I I was thinking about, like I said, I love the killers and this was one that's like, it's more of an existential question. It goes way back to the, even our intro episode about if you were to have sat me down and played me some of like hot fuss in two, like in 2004, after it was out, after Bill heard it, like, I'm not sure if you would have asked me to pick between this and somebody told me which one was going to be a bigger hit. They both have sort of killer hooks. And mm-hmm. somebody told me is still played frequently on things like, you know, XBN. It's still played on the spectrum. If you listen to Sirius and, and it still gets a ton of plays, but it's like, where, where is that line that goes from, you know, something being like a really, really good single that people still go back to. And then just being something that is massive and is sort of carried on. And what is the characteristic of it? And it's, it's something in there that what we're talking about, it's something that I don't, we can't quite, that we probably just can't put words to because there's like some quality to it that like, that has it like kick in and be just a little bit better. But it's like, when I'm listening to this and I listen to hot fuss a decent amount and joking around, it's like, eh, I might skip that track, but it's like, Every time I hear somebody told me, I'm like, this is just a great, great, great track. And then every time I listen to Mr. Brights, I'm like, all right, I get, it, I get it. But it's like, I don't know why. I mean, they're both just killer singles. They are killer singles. <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose. You're also forgetting Smile Like You Mean It, which I think is nearly as good as Mr. Brightside. The hook is awesome. And it kind of sounds like orchestral maneuvers in the dark, just with some moody edge to it. Oh, that that that's a killer record. It's also I, cool oh, that, that is a good one too. Yes, yeah. that's true. <laughs> I, I mean, like I said, they, like they, these guys do singles like, like nobody's business. And uh, I mean, I like, I'm just yeah. looking through there. It's, I, it, it, it's like one after another and they just keep making uh terrific, terrific, but it's like, I don't know why, how it's surprising. And I think like we talked about this on the, the shortlist episode, it's, it's maybe not even so it's like, it's interesting just that this song has become so much bigger almost than itself. Nevertheless, they make killer songs. I apologize for that. Time for our 11th nominee from 2003. It is the debut single by Kanye West, Through the Wire, coming out in September of 03, and the lead single of his debut album, The College Drop. I spit it through the wire, man. Too much stuff on my heart right now, man. I gladly risk it all right now. It's a life or death situation, man. Y'all, y'all, y'all don't really understand how I feel right now, man. It's your boy Kanye Titter. Shot Town, what's going on? We got some things to talk about with Kanye West. He was born in Atlanta, raised in Chicago, wrote poetry, rapped as a kid. Pursued music while in college, dropping out to make that music. He'd make beats and ultimately got to Rockefeller Records, ran by Jay-Z. His beats got on Jay's 2001 album, The Blueprint, which set in motion his entire career. 
His style was about speeding up old soul records, calling it Chipmunk Soul. Despite not fitting the ideal of a rapper, as he was middle class and baby-faced, he got a deal with Rockefeller to make his debut album. But then his jaw was shattered in a car accident. Still, he recorded this through the wire. It would be the lead single to his debut album, The College Dropout, as I mentioned, would hit number 15 on the U.S. Hot 100, would hit number 9 in the U.K. My own experience with Kanye is that I kind of missed the boat when he was really making waves in a good way. And it never hit home in a way that I was like, this is like, you know, my stuff. But I like... I've always appreciated the way that he sort of moved things forward in some of his inventiveness. I don't have that sort of depth to really go deep into Kanye. I get it. I do get sort of the inventiveness. And it's like, when I listen to this, I understand as even as someone who's not the, I don't say that, I don't want to say even the biggest fan, but somebody who hasn't gone as deep into some of the rap and hip hop stuff, that what he's doing is different, that he's being very clever and he's being creative and i understand that there is sort of a charm to this song and a charm to uh early kanye but uh but i like i can't you know sort of sit there and say oh yeah like i don't get it like he's no good it's just it hasn't quite hit it for me if that makes any sense well let me talk about critically sort of how this hits this is the beginning of not just Chipmunk Soul, because it I mean had been happening a little bit. His production side had been out there. Other producers were kind of doing sort of the similar thing where they were speeding up these soul records. I think there's a lot about the nostalgic vibe to that style that works. Uh, when you're speeding up a soul record, it's almost like you're hearing it like you were hearing it as a kid because you don't know what the actual tempo of the song was. So you just kind of, in your brain, this is how you heard it. It's also sort of the beginning of this style called backpack rap, which Kanye is really sort of the leading force in. It happens as you get through the mixtape era into the blog era where you have these rappers who are more talking about what's going on with them mentally and what's happening you know, sort of in their own souls and their hearts. And they're really spilling themselves out on the page. We talked about with clips, push a T and how he was really kind of on the verge of being that kind of rapper who's taking the street life and turning it very internal. This is kind of not the street life anymore. It's just internal dialogue. It's about my own life, my own journey. And that's really going to be this new style of rap. That's going to take over in the two thousands. I remember seeing this on TV too, the video and instantly falling in love I got into the whole idea of what is that song that he's sampling? I want to find out. And then I go research it and find out the original. And I love Chaka Khan. This is very uplifting, making the industry, his unique vocals here with the, 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 the jaw being wired shut. It sounds different. So there's that sort of charm to it. So I got to talk about why this fucking sucks though, too. Um, Kanye was my favorite artist for years. He was my favorite artist. So whereas with you, Chris, you didn't quite kind of get on the train with Kanye. I was there from the instant. For those who don't know his work or may only know him by the shit he's been shitting out of his mouth for the past several years, it's hard to comprehend just how fucking good he was. Constantly innovating, pushing boundaries, creating art, improving his raps with each album. The Kanye West that exists today, he's a Nazi. He rubs up against white supremacists. He has said and written some truly disgusting shit. He certainly has mental health challenges, and I truly hope he overcomes what he's going through and maybe sees the world for good once again, because this Kanye here was that guy. He saw good. He was about sunshine, rising up, believing in people. 
and that's why a lot of us got into him in the first place. What if somebody from the shadow was ill, got a deal on the hottest rap label around? But he wasn't talking about coke and birds, it was more like spoken word. Except he's really putting it down. And he explained the story about how blacks came from glory and what we need to do in a game. We're going to nominate some Kanye songs. You can't tell the story of 21st century music without him. But as someone who was a huge fan of his from, from this moment up until about 2010, it just... Fucking sucks to talk about him now. Um, that's my piece. But we're going to have some songs. We're going to have some songs. Should I try to say Just anything of that? Silence. <laughs> no, I think that's all fair. And I, I will say this. I... Uh... I emailed you this. I was thinking a couple weeks ago about just saying, look, I don't want to do Kanye. And then I sort of, you know, solicited some advice from uh, friends of the pod and people who are listeners. And they were like, no, it's like it just, you know, look, uh, I we could probably do we could probably do it. Not even an episode. We could probably do an entire podcast series on uh when it works to separate art from the artist and all that stuff and yeah absolutely you know frankly in my i don't think there's a right answer i think that like you know people should do and people should listen to things and people should approach the stuff in a way that uh is knowledgeable uh but that also like i don't think there's a right answer i don't think at all uh and it's like i think you're right i don't think you can sort of get here and i don't think you can sort of uh, tell the story of what's going on in music in 2003 without talking about Kanye and some of his songs. Uh, you know, and it's it's hard. I've said before, I don't necessarily even like to, you know, spend my 0.2 cents to stream his music sometimes. But, you know, I went back and listened to this and I'll go back and listen to these and I'll give it my all to to give my uh, my thoughts on Kanye. But uh, the, the sort of other piece of that is that it's like, you know, we all sort of, uh, I don't know. We we sort of have these things where we we all have our own moments, which are good and bad, and all this stuff. Where uh, you know, it's like there's there's a lot of artists that we've talked about on here who are not good people. Yeah, <laughs> we've yeah, tried to yeah, approach yeah. it that we're going to talk talk about their songs, and and I and, think it's a it affects, and I think in good ways. I think it's affected sort of I think, my approach to them. But uh, you know, it's like that's okay. Well, we're not trying to say they're good people. The, the hardest part is that a lot of the artists we've talked about in the past on this podcast that have all of those marks on them and have done really bad things, a lot of them aren't here anymore. A lot of them aren't really – they're not impacting the universe in any sort of way anymore. Kanye is to this day, every day, impacting because he has a platform and people do follow him and people do listen to him. And he's got some really fucking atrocious viewpoints and <laughs> – He's working with the wrong yeah. fucking people. And, you know, like I like that's the hard part because it is still happening constantly and is part of what our country is right now. But, you yeah, know, I mean, we, that's we're, right. We're going right. to get through it. I, I mean, that's right. And it's like, I mean, us talking about it is is like, you know, not the biggest hill to climb. It is sort of an interesting. No, like, no. It's very we're, just, low thing we're a little podcast. Us, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But it's also but like you're right. I mean, it's like I don't we have weird. Uh, we, not you and I, but I think everybody has sort of a weird approach to some of these things. And uh, uh, like I was thinking in that context about someone who I pushed very hard to be on the podcast and you did not push back on at all. And that was Warren Zevon. And I feel like Warren Zevon, I have read his biography. He was a horribly abusive person who did not very treat abusive. people in his Absolutely. life very well yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. And then was seen in his later life as a colorful character. Right. right. And it's like, right. as this guy who like, you know, dealt with, uh, 
death and dealt with cancer and uh in a way that was like you know and it's like for like you said it's like for whatever reason all is forgiven but all is forgiven by us and then all is forgiven you know i mean he was a white guy in a very white guy industry uh at the time which is still a white guy industry maybe even less so and it's like his sins were going to be forgiven in a way that other people's are not and it's not to necessarily equate anything to anything but it's like you know yeah i i just think it's like like i said i was there was part of me that was like i can't even talk about this guy because you're right because it's like i see stuff people talking about him you know today and it's like it makes me so angry but at the same time uh, that's, you know, sort of a, a defeatist attitude to have, whereas, you know, you can take a step back and say, look, what was going on in 2003? What did he do? And how did it actually like, you know, move music forward or move music at all? And, you know, that also, for better or for worse, is important. Let's Through the Wire by Kanye West, our 11th nominee from 2003. <laughs> Let's let's get it. Let's let's go to something different. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. It's a palate cleanser with someone who has had no controversy whatsoever. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Britney Spears. <laughs> with toxic. Baby, can't you see? I'm calling. A like you should wear a warning. It's dangerous. I'm falling. There's no escape. covered her with her debut baby one more time that was a hall of songs inductee the song that turned her into an international star follow-up oops i did it again which proved to be even slicker teen pop was a smash then came her third album britney another smash that attempted to show a more adult side to her though critics initially criticized the sexualization of the then 19 year old saying the wrong things and all of that, of course, all those critics did. More to the point, though, the album is pretty uneven. Then came her first starring role in the teen road trip film Crossroads. She broke up with boyfriend Justin Timberlake event sync that was very highly publicized. She was about to take some time off, but then that didn't last long because she started working with a who's who of musicians and producers, including The Matrix, Richie Rich, Guy Sigsworth, on the heavy dance and electropop album In The Zone. The second single was toxic this was a number one hit in the uk a number nine hit in the u.s this is the one on the podcast where i've listened to over and over again i'm like wow this is so much better than i even realized it was when it started (laughs) that was my reaction too is i mean i remember this because you said i was you know 26 years old i would go to the bars in chicago and things like that and you'd hear the pot like you'd hear what was popular and you'd hear this and I don't even know if at the time I really knew that it was Britney Spears. Maybe I did, but it like, it feels like just such a huge step. I, I guess I say a huge step forward. That sounds a little bit condescending, but it feels like it's just sort of a, a, you know, a change in direction from earlier Britney Spears, where it's like, you know, we talked about like baby one more time. And we talked about how there's this little dark side, maybe sitting underneath some of those songs, but 
like there's just no sort of bubblegum pop to this at all right it's got the mm. it's a much more sort of like it's a dance song it's a dance song in a lot of ways but it's a dance song that has an edge to it uh in you know in more ways than one both with the way that it sounds and with the lyrics and things like that and it is uh i sort of had the same thing like i said i i'm not sure i even really realized it was britney spears at the time and then going back to listen to it i'm like yeah there's a lot a lot going on both like her performance and there's a lot going on in the production here this is the definitely next step forward from can't get you out of my head by kylie minogue which was written by kathy dennis who also writes this record along with Henrik Jeanback, Christian Carlson, and Pontius Winberg. Maybe it's Vinberg. Either way, Winberg, Carlson, they are Bloodshy and Avant from Sweden. They wrote this with Janet Jackson in mind. I will be honest, I can't really hear Janet Jackson doing this. They offered it to Minogue, who I could definitely hear doing this song, but she declined. But this is Britney's. This has always been Britney's. This is just Britney all the way. I wasn't really into dance pop at this point. I kind of moved on from teen pop and teen pop kind of moved on from teen pop. Right. But this is a dizzying, dazzling record. Britney's breathy vocals winding around this sort of skidding and zipping rhythm. I love the, I don't know what it is, but it's like a James Dean movie-esque guitar, that hook, <laughs> that that kind of thing. Maybe garage even. Love how the synth line counters itself for the second verse. That kind of thing. Lots going on. But it works because the structure sound and the song is terrific. It's just a terrific lyric sheet, too. Yeah, I mean, so I my thing, I thought of it as like surf rock in the guitar, where it's mm. almost like that's what That's what it is. Like, it's surf rock. Yes, oh, thank you. Thank it's you. just fun. It's like, but it's why, like, and with, this is something we've talked about before, where it was like, there's this moments where like rock music starts to realizes that you know say rap hip-hop dance whatever it is is becoming the biggest thing and starts to borrow from that a little bit and then everything goes full circle where it's now you have these like true dance huge pop songs that are borrowing from 50s rock and surf rock yeah. and things like that but you're right i mean in lyrically it is really it, like what I, I love these songs, this is again, another theme we've come back to a lot where it's like the lyrics say one thing up front, which is basically like, she knows that it's like a toxic relationship and that, but the music is saying something completely, not completely different, but sort of shifting in a different direction. It's like, yeah, she knows that it's like a toxic relationship, but she also doesn't care whenever like you're able to sort of do that, where you're able to sort of say something just through the music that is never actually really said in the words of the song that's just a, I, I mean it's a it's a great pop so that is toxic by britney spears our 12th and final nominee from our 2003 list that is the end of the nominees. How about that? Our 12 nominees from 2003 are Into Club by 50 Cent, Such Great Heights by the Postal Service, Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes, Bring Me to Life by Evanescence, Maps by Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Crazy in Love by Beyonce featuring Jay-Z, it's 5 O'Clock Somewhere by Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett. Milkshake by Khalees. Hey Ya by Outkast. Mr. Brightside by The Killers. Through the Wire by Kanye West. 
and Toxic by Britney Spears. Those 12 songs are going to join so many more songs on our next (laughs) election ballot, our 49th election coming up with this episode dropping. The songs in that election, so that you understand what they are, are Hypnotized by the Notorious B.I.G., Say My Name by Destiny's Child, One More Time by Daft Punk, Clint Eastwood by Gorillaz, Fallen by Alicia Keys, Get Your Freak On by Missy Elliott, Lose Yourself by Eminem, Don't Know Why by Nora Jones, Clocks by Coldplay, Hot and Her by Nelly, Do You Realize by The Flaming Lips, and as Chris laughs after I say Hot and Her, <laughs> Get Low by Lil John and the East Side Boys. Also, four other songs, before I forget, we have four Veterans Committee nominees that we brought into the fold from 1999 to 2002, and I forget what they are. Do you know what they are, Chris? (laughs) The first one was Why Does It Always Rain On Me by Travis. (laughs) We also had Question by Old 97s. Um, We had... uh... Ride with me by Nelly, Ride and with me finally, by Nelly. wherever, whenever by Shakira. That's I couldn't think of the name of it. I knew we had the Shakira. I had to pull yeah. up the thing to like to, to take a look. Those songs are all going to be on the ballot. The next ballot. That's a big, big ballot. I think it's something around what like 20, 29 songs. It was twenty six. Okay, because right? we that's uh, not bad. Twelve. That's not bad. Twelve carryovers. Twelve new, and then the oh no, you're right. Twenty eight. My math. 28. So there you go. 28. So that's, that's a bigger ballot than usual, but you'll have between June 4th and June 11th, 2023 to vote for what you think belong. You'll get up to 10 choices. Be judicious. Think about the good stuff. Think about what you like, whatever. Put your votes in at hallofsongs.com. Every page on the website has the ballot on the bottom. Just scroll down. You'll see the big red ballot. Vote for up to 10. After June 11th, we'll tabulate and then we'll give you the results in the upcoming results show before our 2004 episode. That brings us to the cuts from 2003. What do you got, Chris? So we talked about a lot of these on uh, uh, the, you know, the shortlist episode. I won't go into the thrills any uh, deeper than what we already have. Oh, uh, Um, why not? So I do have to say my, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, uh, Josh, who is a a very loyal listener had just caught up on the shortlist episode and he will be disappointed that we did not end up nominating uh, dirt off your shoulders, Jay-Z, but he did want me to note that, uh, in early 2009, I guess the day before Obama's inauguration, that uh, that is actually the song that the Obama advance team used to test the speakers uh, in Lafayette Square for the inauguration. <laughs> so uh, that one should get a shout out just for that. Uh, we talked a little bit about Fountains of Wayne and what to do with them. And I realized that I listed off a bunch of Fountains of Wayne songs from uh, Welcome Interstate Managers. And I left off like my absolute favorite Fountains of Wayne song, which is uh, Bright Future and Sales. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I may have to come back and do something for Fountains of Wayne during the VC. I, I, like my problem with that, like there is the album Welcome Interstate Managers is like a masterclass in songwriting by Adam Schlesinger. Uh, it's like every time you listen to it, a different song kind of jumps out. And again, I think there's an argument that like, you know, the one song, Stacy's Mom, that got some radio play is in the bottom half of the songs of that. And which is not even really a criticism of Stacy's mom. It's just more of a, a comment that he just wrote so many brilliant, perfect, snarky, funny, 
pop songs and put them all on the same album. So Fountains of Wayne, listen to them more. I mean, at this point, I'm sure people have to because you've talked about them so much. A couple of songs that we didn't talk about in the shortlist episode that I just wanted to bring up real quick. Fuck Me Pumps by Amy Winehouse, kind of her first big hit in the UK, kind of gets her going. The Strokes, they follow up in 2003 with their next album, Reptilia. Great single. Salt Shaker by Ying Yang Twins. That one is kind of under the radar, influential, and really fun. Uh, so that one's fun. Daughters by John Mayer. I don't know if we're ever going to do any John Mayer, but Daughters was a huge hit for him and was definitely the, one of the adult contemporary smashes of the year. Final one I'm going to mention, and because I don't think we'll ever get to mention him on this podcast. I mean, I, I can't imagine from this point on we will, but Joe Budden, Pump It Up. Pump It Up has become this like seminal sort of early 2000s, somewhere between the streets and like party anthem rap song. It's sort of like a weird, like, does it belong where it is? You know, it sounds like something Onyx would have done 10 years before, but Joe Budden is this very charismatic rapper who could have had a really huge rap career. And he had a pretty good rap career, but he just didn't have that sort of overwhelming popularity as others did. He has since parlayed that into being the foremost internet guy in rap history. He is the creator and host of a very successful podcast. Uh, but Joe Budden is awesome. Pump It Up is a really fun song. So there you go. That's it for 2003. We will be back with our 2004. Before that, we'll have our usual recap show. I think right now the plan is to do the recap show on June 16th. That makes sense. And then putting out our 2004 episode on June 18th. Things could change. We will see. Summertime's coming, vacations, all that stuff. So we'll see how things pan out. Chris, who do we thank? I mean, we have to ourselves. But go ahead. Ourselves, <laughs> yes. You know, our our, our uh, contributors, uh, Stock Music Media, with uh, the theme songs and uh, Aaron Delashman, Piper Down Productions, have been less productive as of late. But we mm. still thank you for your contributions uh, uh, because uh, they were good contributions and you were not well compensated. Speaking of less productive, I need to update some stuff on hallofsongs.com, but go there. You can find the list of all the Hall of Songs inductees. Soon enough, you'll find the whole list, I, I promise. We also have the entire inductee list on Spotify. Just go search. You'll find the playlist of all the inductees there, the Hall of Songs, it's called. We also have a regularly updated list of the current nominees. Once our show comes out here, starting right away, when you get to start voting, you get to go to Spotify and just look up Hall of Songs nominees, and you'll see the list of the nominees that are currently on the ballot. And you can play that playlist. It'll be a very fun playlist, I'm sure, to listen to, especially when you're in the grocery store or maybe blasting out of your car while you're driving around. Nothing like hearing, I don't know, in the club, followed by, uh, give me something that's really on the other side here. Maps, I don't know, something like that, whatever. It's five o'clock somewhere. There you go. That's what, there, there, that's a good It's one. always five o'clock somewhere. Always is. Well, speaking of that, time to head out of here and have a drink. That's the end of Hall of Songs. I thank you for listening. Again, June 4th, June 11th, hallofsongs.com. Vote for what you think are the Hall of Songs inductees. Whatever you think are the best, do it. Until then, I'm Tim. I'm Chris. Premier.